Hello fellow space explorers and welcome to the latest episode of The Art of Space Engineering. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and for those of you who are new, this is a podcast which aims to explore the details behind how spacecraft and various payloads come together before launch and the lessons learned along the way. Now, when it comes to exploring our universe or providing services to daily life on our planet, spacecraft have to incorporate several subsystems to ensure that they can carry out their objectives successfully. However, by far one of the most important components of the spacecraft is the flight software. Flight software is the essence of your spacecraft. It is what dictates every single operation the spacecraft performs, whether that be processing commands, collecting data, or performing regular maintenance activities. And robust flight software is an essential part to achieving mission success. So my biggest exposure to this has been working with my team on developing the flight software for the Phoenix CubeSat. And along the way, we did a lot of things right, but we also did a lot of things wrong. So I wanted to dedicate an episode to exploring our experience for those of you who are interested in, or currently working on, developing CubeSats of your own, as well as for those of you who are just interested in learning about our experience. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the project, Phoenix is a CubeSat, or a small satellite about the size of a bread loaf, that was developed by a student team at Arizona State University. Our payload was a fluorinfrared camera, so the mission aimed to collect thermal images from different cities within the U.S. to study urban heat islands and educate students on space mission design. So the, the urban heat island effect is a phenomenon in which the urban area is much warmer than the surrounding rural outskirts. Now, for several years now, this has been a very significant topic to study because these rising surface temperatures can be very detrimental to everyday life. It leads to increased energy consumption, which in turn creates more pollution, and it contributes to heat waves, which cause heat-related illnesses. I mean, in AZ, when a cooler summer has a high of 97 rather than 110 or higher, we understand this topic a little bit too well. So I was very fortunate enough to serve as the project manager and a systems engineer on Phoenix, and take it from the proposal phase to a fully integrated spacecraft, which is now in orbit about the Earth as of February this year. So this project has consumed my life for about five years now, and I consider it my first child. So today's episode features a roundtable discussion between myself and a few of my very dear friends who helped develop Phoenix with me, Craig Knobloch and Vivek Chako. Now, there is a lot that goes into flight software development, and because of that, this discussion ended up being kind of long. So in order to tailor to different interests, but still incorporate all of our lessons learned, I decided to split this up into two different episodes. So this episode focuses on our software architecture, how we organized our work, and the lessons learned in software development. Part two will then focus more heavily on our experiences with systems level testing and what we discovered as we started putting our software together. So before we get started with the roundtable discussion, I do want to take a second to explain Phoenix a little bit more in depth to provide some context for this interview. In the fall of 2015, we wrote a proposal to NASA's Undergraduate Student Instrument Project, or USIP, which aimed to provide funded opportunities for students to develop science payloads for either Earth or space research, and consequently gain more experience in their field. In the summer of 2016, we received word that our proposal was selected, and that it was to be funded by this opportunity. From there, we worked on the spacecraft until it was delivered to NanoRacks in August of 2019, and subsequently launched in November of that year. More recently, Phoenix was deployed into orbit as of February 2020. A bit more of a background on the spacecraft itself, since we had the budget for it, almost all of the hardware was commercial off-the-shelf products. 
as this would increase reliability, reduce risk, and allow us to focus more on just putting everything together and making sure that the system was very robust. So our main job was to understand how the hardware worked and integrate everything together both mechanically and electrically, as well as develop the flight software that would allow Phoenix to do everything that it needed to do in orbit to complete its mission objectives. Now, I won't go into depth on all of the components that we used, but if you're interested in how Phoenix was designed, then I strongly encourage you to visit our website, and I will put a link to that in the description below. So that explains Phoenix in general, but we'll describe things a lot more in depth as we actually talk about them in the conversation. But good stuff is in the interview, so let's just jump right into it. Mike, like I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm about to do like stand-up comedy or like serenade you both. Let's hear on a this joke. Podcast. <laughs> yeah, right, I, like I'm getting ready to to have a concert, saying like Christina Aguilera, serenade all of you. Oh, and and now I can do this. Rogers out. <laughs> Drop the thing that I just spent several hundred dollars on. Yeah, it's no, like it's it like actually, you, it's like you might like, drop. This was like sixty bucks. Oh, on Best Buy, yeah, it's it's pretty cheap, but like it's great, and it comes with a little stand. Oh, that's cool. And and the USB cord for for my computer. Okay, <laughs> let's let's get started. All right, thank you for taking time out of your day to talk about uh, Phoenix CubeSat and developing the software, which we spent many long grimy hours working out. But yeah, so I figured let's just start out by introducing you guys to the audience. So why don't we go around the table or Zoom table, virtual table, real quick and introduce everybody so you can say your name, the role in your project, how you got involved, and then what you're doing now after having moved on. Go for it, Craig. Okay. Okay. Uh, So my name is Craig Knobloch. I joined uh, the R project in very, very early 2017. So late January, 2017. So in that case, you know, I remember uh, sitting in my, uh, I don't remember what the class name was called, but it was like, you know, assembly language programming um, on, you know, super old school processors nobody uses anymore just to teach kids how to program assembly. Um, And this guy walks in in a trench coat and he stands at the front of the class and he goes like, uh, hey everybody, we're making a satellite and uh, we really like some more people to, to join. So if you want to make a satellite, you know, shoot that woman an email. Okay. All right. Bye. Um, so I like turned to my friend. I was like, that sounds kind of neat. You want to do that? And he's like, oh, sure. So uh, me along with like 10 other people go up to the front and we snap a picture of the email address. I reach out to uh, the email address and um, you know, Sarah's email and she gets in contact with me. And then we uh, hold a little informal interview, which I um, I didn't have a lot of experience programming at the time, so I I just kind of cobbled together what I could and what I could, and I guess she bought it. Um, and I went through uh, learning where we were, and you know, um, being as a as contributive of a member as I could. And uh, at the end of fall 2017, or or um, 
maybe the end of spring 2018, uh, somewhere around there, Sarah asked me to take over as lead for software. I was ecstatic. Heck yeah, I want to do that. Um, so I took over as lead in 2018 at some point. And then as we got down to the wire and had to deliver the hierarchical kind of thing, kind of just dissolved and it was the core members all working together. So that was really fun. Uh, I now work at Vanguard. We are a mutual fund company. So we sell mutual funds and ETFs and I transferring to something closer to our trading operations. So that's uh, data analysis um, with Python. And I'm really excited for that. How about you, Vivek? That's cool. Um, <laughs> that was a nice introduction. Uh, so my name is Vivek Chago and uh, I, did, I joined way later. I joined like in uh, December of 2018. And this was kind of interesting because uh, uh, Judd Bowman, uh, RPI, he got in touch with me and he was like, so I was doing another project before this. I was working with NASA's Psyche mission. We were like making a 3D asteroid viewer and stuff. Uh, and I was like basically a graduate student mentor there. So, so Judd gets in touch with me and he goes like, hey, do you guys know anything about I2C and uh, working with Raspberry Pi and Arduino? And I was like, yeah, I know those stuff. So he was like, okay, come meet me. All right. And I go and meet him and he goes like, uh, you know, so we have this issue with the I2C. And this was much later because I think in December 2018, that was like the time where the entire project was at a situation where, you know, we had a bunch of stuff lying around and we had to fix everything and make everything work together and we were running out of time. So he went like, we need someone to fix this. So why don't you come on board and start working with us? And that time, that's that's when I joined. And uh, it was it was just a roller coaster right after that. It was so much fun. You know, we did a lot of coding. We I got to meet crazy, amazing people. Yeah, that's uh, that's where I started it. Although, uh, yeah, certain things I would say that uh, I joined as an international student. So it was something which was uh, not something I'd done before, but uh, getting to work on uh, a satellite that is right now in space as we speak is rather uh, humbling. And uh, it's, just an, it's just an amazing experience to have uh, worked on something like this. So yeah, December 2018, I joined uh, as a software developer. So I was helping out with uh, the software for the entire flight systems that uh, is the core of Phoenix. Those were lovely introductions indeed. And thank you guys for, well, first for joining the team in the first place and also for sharing your story. So in this interview, I wanted to dive into a little bit of everything that had to do with flight software between design, development, how we did testing, and even how we structured ourselves as a team and how we actually went about like writing the software. But before we get into more of the nitty gritty of development and testing, I thought we'd start off by talking about the overall design and architecture of the flight software that we used on Phoenix to give people context. So Craig, do you want to start us off with just a general description of the architecture that we used? Sure. So you guys know me and that I'm the I'm a software guy, right? So the things I really love are all software related. So we might get into more hardware specific discussions later, but the really nice thing about software is that you can abstract it all to the point where the the problems become the same as, you know, any other paradigm that you might be working on. Paradigm might be the wrong word, but you know, any other situation you might be working on. So let me explain that a little more. So in school, 
you know, like, and maybe some of you listening to this podcast are still students, right? So you may know that a lot of your classes, unless you're in like a space specific degrees, which I, I'm sure those exist, but you know, <laughs> I don't think they're very common. Um, you're going to get projects that are much more like application making, you know, maybe you make some mobile apps, maybe you make some web apps, um, or maybe you just do little projects here and there uh, for your classes. But for the most part, you're working on your laptop or your computer, maybe you're working on a remote server, you're not working on a tiny little embedded um, computer that has limited resources and has to operate in freaking space, <laughs> you know, so um, that presents a really interesting problem, but it you can still abstract it such that the software can you can approach the problem from a software perspective the same way that you would on a regular computer um just w bearing in mind some memory constraints and the like so our architecture basically keeps that in mind first off we set up an abstraction layer that you know takes rid gets rid of like the clutter um or the, not the clutter but the the kind of hardships with working on this kind of system so um we used a application development framework called CFS slash CFE. So it's uh, it's core flight system that has a core flight executive in it. And this was developed by um, uh, NASA Goddard, Goddard Space Flight Research Center, yeah. if that's the whole name of that. Yeah. Um, so this is a really, really wonderful thing for um, the, you know, really large scale projects. Um, so it provides a lot of utility for you to just use, right? And it's meant for spacecrafts. So you don't have to worry about all those things that are inherent to the challenges of building a software for a spacecraft. The problem really gets reduced to how do I make an application run for this thing, right? So our problems now were making specific applications for all the functions on the satellite. So that gets broken down into hardware applications. So we had CFE as our base level, like sort of operating system for all this, not really an operating system, but you know, framework yeah. for all this. And then we had hardware specific applications. So we had a camera application, we had an ADCS application, a GPS application, et cetera. And they all work together while being distinct and separate. And they all use uh, CFE to uh, operate smoothly. Um, and then, you know, we had sort of a grand plan of how, how all these would work, but, you know, certain realities set in, certain constrictions get cut. So, you know, those sorts of things come in, but the architecture is still flexible enough where, uh, or the abstraction is still flexible enough where you can still fling those responsibilities around a bit and it still works out. I think I think Craig, that's really interesting the way you've put the whole uh, uh, architecture of our software. A couple of things which I would like to point out here uh, definitely is the fact that given the uh, amount of memory and the computing resources available on the OBC that we were using, that's really low compared to any any other computing system. And this is typical to any embedded project that you're doing. Usually you're working with memories, which is like, you know, sometimes kilobytes, sometimes uh, it goes into maybe megabytes, but uh, that's the amount of resources that you're looking at. And to be able to work out how you can build a system that's A, efficient, B, uh, has a couple of redundancies so that you don't basically destroy the spacecraft right uh, so you need to work with all of these and i think this was this was this was a very intel interesting challenge that we had to work with 
I did personally get to work on certain components directly and, uh, you know, although CFE is awesome, it did come, it come with its own challenges and a learning curve that we had to uh, work with. And um, I think, I think in all, it was a very interesting challenge. It seemed daunting at first, but once we started working with the team and trying to break it up into smaller chunks that we could, you know, manage and divide amongst the team, I think it became better as we went forward with the project, uh, you know, the software development phase. Uh, one, one thing like, for example, uh, we did have uh, several different uh, uh, devices, like Craig mentioned, uh, that we needed to sort of put into the whole system. So we did have a lot of people work separately on these individual problems, which kind of made the entire software delivery pipeline uh, a lot more manageable. But then uh, definitely you all also have like the uh, you know, time constraint and the fact that you have certain number of people working on the team. And that I think eventually down the line dictated how we could, uh, you know, how, what we needed to focus on and what we need to get rid of. Yeah. But, and and on that, there's like that double-edged sword on having the application split up like that, right? Because, right. you know, having hardware-specific applications that are all distinct and separate from each other is really, really great for, you know, sort of a, a, a larger um, software team or even a small software team. The point is that you can have people working separate from each other, you know, on these hardware applications at the exact same time. And that's really great for moving stuff forward. But... As soon as like there becomes a really nasty problem that starts yeah. to creep up, you need to focus more attention to that hard wrap and that gets, uh, it becomes a drain on resources really fast. Right. Yeah, speaking of, speaking of resources and, and kind of how people were divided, on top of CFE, we also had to incorporate the lower level software that was developed by GOMSpace, which is the vendor for, so we use the Nanomind A3200 OBC. This was software that they had developed that utilized the CubeSat space protocol and facilitated things like telemetry for the components that we incorporated, the AX100 and the OBC, as well as just routing and uh, networking between those components as well. So we had this very small facet of, of people who were really well versed in the software and the software wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like a few files of code, it, it was a lot. And the software was very integral to how the OBC operated. And so because you just had a few people who had to spend a lot of time and resources really um, understanding the code and how it worked. Uh, like we did get to a couple of points in time where, you know, there were some problems that only like a, a small set of people could really figure out and solve just because of how long it took to really understand everything that was going on in there. So that's also something to consider as you're going about using different softwares, whether it's provided by your vendor or it's it's something like CFS where they've done a lot of the functionality for you, um, is is really just like how you're actually spreading out who works on what so that way people are very strong in one thing and can can really contribute to, to solving problems. So continuing on more with the design and, and how we actually went about um, developing things. So apart from the actual architecture, probably the, the most, the thing that had the most significant impact on any development that we had was definitely our mission requirements and the mission objectives. 
And that's because your requirements really define everything that you do and are ultimately what help you make your mission successful. And it, it took us a little while to really properly define those for our software applications, but once we did, development got a lot easier. So uh, to, to give some additional context on this for Phoenix, the the project was originally purely driven by the science objective to take thermal images to study the urban heat island effect. And we defined our system entirely based on this for a while until we really started getting into development and realized that our system really couldn't be set up to conduct absolute science measurements. So because of that, we refined our scope and we said, okay, so well, really just the most important part of this project is to educate students. So we'll just focus on making a system that is really good at collecting relative surface temperatures because that's the main thing that we care about with studying or the urban heat island effect. And we'll just do the absolute best that we can with that. And that was okay. We had a system that was completely capable of doing that. However, when you throw in several semesters of really high student turnover, especially on the software side and especially during really critical periods of time like summer break and winter break where you don't have schoolwork, and now we have you know, a rapidly approaching delivery date, we had to refine our requirements even further so that way we knew that we could deliver a very robust system that would do the bare minimum that we needed for a thermal imaging mission. With the thought in mind that once we achieved that, we could then continue to improve things from there. So now, instead of our objective being to take thermal images of several cities within the U.S. during multiple times a day um, and trying to obtain very high-resolution science, our objective was now to take one image of one city, that place being Phoenix, Arizona, and downlink it to the ground. And after that was achieved, the mission could be done, if we so wished. So in, in doing that, now you've cut out a lot of complexity from your system design. So for example, now we don't have to take multiple images. We don't, because of that, we don't have to worry about deleting images from the camera's memory because the camera will only store a certain number of images before it won't take anymore. We don't have to worry about uplinking schedule files that were larger than one packet, which would require that we reassemble these on the spacecraft. We could just uplink a couple of smaller ones and then wait until it was done and then uplink another one. If we're taking a picture of Phoenix, CubeSat is over Phoenix, so just uplink it as it flies overhead and just time your operations appropriately. It also means that you don't have to worry about file management and having large storage capacity. You know, just just keep it on the OBC. Um, and, and there there are more examples, but really the point is is that it's important to define your mission objective very clearly, so that way you can work towards minimum functionality and then improve things from there to make the system better. In our case, we we ended up being able to add on a lot of these features that went past the bare minimum of what we needed. So. In the end, we were able to delete images and uplink larger schedule files, um, but having a very clear minimum mission objective definitely made it easier for us to deliver demos of our functionality and actually see things come together without really without going too deep into developing one single application and then eventually realizing that we did not have time to develop other critical functions. You know, in retrospect, I think something that would have really helped us um, and this, this sounds, this seems so obvious now, you know, having uh, a lot of uh, software, ex software development experience now, you know, more than, you know, 2018 when I was you know, still learning and stuff like that, um, is just having a good baked in design before you start, 
you know, coding. Uh, you know, it just it sounds so so obvious now. And like this is what I recommend to students now. Like, you no, know, like do your design first. You know, most of most of what we do as software engineers is not code. Do your design first. The code is will be a, just a tiny little sliver of nothing if you just do your design first. And like we had, not to say we didn't have a design, right? We did, um, but it wasn't very, very far thought out. And you know, you can't really have uh, a software design really f uh, far thought out unless you're working in straight up waterfall. So um, you know, you kind of iterate or whatever. But I'll tell you one something that kind of came back and, and bit us in, in our design. So we had an idea to take those hardware applications I was talking about and we we split the responsibilities of a hardware application into two distinct parts which was a driver and a manager and the idea here was the manager was responsible for getting commands in and understanding how to feed those to into the uh, the driver application uh, etc so just doing those sort of like mm. kind of what your supervisor at work does to you um, and then uh, the driver application was responsible for knowing exactly how to talk to the hardware and managing that all out, right? And that would be groovy. It, that would be really, really great if any of the hardware had any kind of um, agency of its own. And what I mean by that is uh, let's say that a hardware, a piece of hardware did something that you weren't expecting it to do. A really good example of this is a hardware interrupt. So a hardware, a piece of hardware operates perfectly fine on its own, and but if there's an issue, it'll issue out an interrupt on one of its uh, one of its ports. And you have to have a software application there that will catch the interrupt and inform the rest of the system. If we had a piece of hardware that did that, then having one hardware application that was responsible both for communicating with it and for communicating with the rest of the system wouldn't be able to handle those interrupts. If you have two, one specifically for talking to the thing and handling those interrupts, then that uh, application, the driver application, can communicate with the rest of the system. But we didn't have any hardware like that. So it was a really, it was a good idea at the time. Um, until we realized that we didn't have any hardware um, that had that kind of feature. Um, you know, but the, the time period between the driver manager design and the realization that wasn't necessary was like several months to a year, maybe? I, it, was, it was a bit. Um, and I, I can tell you like the guilt <laughs> that um, I felt when I realized that that design was hurting our productivity, right? Because we had a lot of resources pour poured into that at that point. Um, and I, I remember having to go to some of our developers and be like, hey, so we've been like, you know, pouring resources into getting that design to work. Um, that design isn't necessary. So I'm happy that we have stuff that works for it, but don't keep doing it like that. Um, and that was, those were uh, really difficult conversations to have. But as soon as we, you know, ripped the bandaid off and acknowledged that the design was bad and that we just needed to, to you know, keep the code that worked working, but not do it anymore, uh, the, the productivity went up because of it. So 
yeah, it sucked to acknowledge it, but uh, had to be done. Yeah, I think a couple of things I could add here. The whole challenge with the whole not having interrupts specific to applications was something we did have to go uh, and try and work with even till I think late January to 2019. So the way we tried to work around it was, so CFE has this thing where it has a thread level priority that we could set. And that enables us to uh, decide on how much resources is given to a particular thread. And in case, in case we have a certain number of CPU cycles that needs to be handed out, which thread sort of gets more priority over the other. And that's something which I still remember we had like, uh, we had a whiteboard and we, we listed down every single app and we had to run through the priority that we set for every one of them. We did like testing for a couple of days. We came back and we were like, okay, this needs a little more because this is like uh, freezing up. And we had to like change that. And we had to keep doing that till we reached a point where we were like, okay, this list of priority and this sets of priority that we have uh, sort of, uh, minimizes the issues in the system. Definitely uh, starting off with uh, an amazing system design is something that is critical to uh, any project success. But then uh, more often than not, it reaches a point wherein you have a system design that is not uh, the best system design to begin with. Uh, but then you already have that in place and you need to sort of work around it and try to make things work because you don't have the bandwidth to go back and change the entire thing. So I think it's, it's, it's got a balance of both uh, a, a good design to start off with and trying to work with what you have in order to ma- minimize the issues. E- eventually we did even remove certain uh, devices. Like I think the biggest example would be the SD card because of the challenges that we were facing during our testing phases. And uh, we did that primarily so that we reduce the complexity of the system as it is uh, and not introduce something that uh, adds more issues than it solves. The fact that we develop something so late in the development life cycle and not have enough time to do an in-depth testing uh, is something which was an extremely high risk uh, compared to the amount of reward that we were getting. Yeah, yeah. to to pick up of, of off of what you're saying, Vivek. So I think one of the biggest challenges that we had when developing Phoenix was trying to understand like so you have you have your mission requirements and your top level requirements. And when you've never made something like this before, it's really difficult to properly define the scope of what you're doing when it when you're like down to a very you know the very technical level like software development because with software you can have a bunch of like there's so many features that you can have um there you know there's your all of your hardware has several different commands and there's i mean especially for like an imaging mission um there's a lot that goes into that there's pointing there's imaging there's downlinking um, but at the the lowest level, everything has to work together cohesively as a system. And so the biggest one of the biggest challenges that we faced was defining exactly what is the scope of what is the scope of that? what is um, what does that really look like? Um, what is at a minimum, a bare minimum, what do we need in order to get the spacecraft as a whole working together in order to downlink one image? And then right. based on that, where do we go from there? 
so to circle this back back around to the SD card and what that meant is um, I mean, minimum mission, minimum functionality is really just using the onboard flash memory. And that's what we used for Phoenix. We stored everything on in the flash memory, images, uh, telemetry files, event logs, all of, all of that. Um, originally, we wanted to use the SD card because we noticed that as we used the flash memory, it slowed down processing on the onboard computer. And we didn't want to eat that up. We didn't want to, to limit the onboard storage that we had. Um, and so originally we thought that the SD card was actually part of our minimum. And we, we tried for a really long time to, to get that to work uh, before app running into several issues, like as Vivek mentioned. And it only came from pursuing the development further and actually you know, trying to work towards getting to our minimum functionality point that we really refined and realized exactly what minimum functionality meant for us. So it wasn't always clear to us in the beginning. And even as, you know, even along the way, as we thought, yeah, no, this is, yeah, we don't need this. Um, we'll get rid of that. And this is absolutely the minimum functionality. Like I, I think we said a couple of times, yeah, this is the minimum functionality. And then it would change as we realized, no, we don't actually need that thing. I think, something that really contributes to that uh, that idea of you know like further cutting and cutting and cutting functionality is that you know it's not so much that you know you're lowering the bar you know it may it may appear that way but it's it's right. more you're trying to get to something that is deliverable and then you work your way from there so yeah. in industry that i've seen and sarah i would love your perspective on this um that i've seen that like when it comes to spacecraft you get your requirements just just straight out of the way, right? Because a spacecraft is not really something that you can iterate on after you deliver it, right? It right. goes up into space and you're not getting it back. Um, so you have all of your requirements set and done and you can you can go forward. Now, in software design, that kind of approach where you collect your requirements and then you just iterate on what you have until you deliver it, that's called waterfall. And that is fantastic in industry with experienced professionals. It doesn't work so well when you have a fluid um, group of students, right? Because like we were all undergrads, we didn't really even have a lot of experience yet. So um, what we what we were trying to get to is more the software design or the software development process called agile, in which you have some initial set of requirements and you think, okay, this is my whole set of requirements. It's not, but okay, this is my whole set of requirements. And then what you do is you just start delivering something, right? So in Agile, you go on what's called sprints, right? So every two weeks or three weeks or one week, whatever you want to define a sprint as, you do some development and then you deliver something. So if you were making a car this way, at the end of your first sprint, you would deliver, I'm not a, I'm not a mechanic. <laughs> Um, you would deliver like a frame or you would deliver, you know, wheels. And then later you would deliver a drivetrain and then you would deliver an engine, you deliver a steering wheel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until you finally had a car. My computer science nerd is showing because I don't know what car components are, but it's the analogy I chose. So um, for students in something that would traditionally be waterfall, uh, I think agile is really the best way to go. And that's what we were really trying to do there is to deliver the thing that you can then build upon. 
No, I think that's 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 cool. You know, that's exactly what we did because at the end of it, we did want to have you know satellite that does something useful, you know, and that's I think was was the basis of what we did towards the end. We had twenty four hour tests. We tried to test every single bit of it. You know, like we were literally trying to break the system as much as we could. Uh, coming up with points that okay this could go wrong that could go wrong and then trying to come up with uh, uh, you know solutions for all of that so that we have at least our core functionality working and I think that was critical to to ensure that we have at least some sort of a working uh, satellite yeah and that testing component is something that we could have done a lot better so you know that that idea of like you're getting towards the end yeah. and uh, you just need to test as much as you have, right? You need to find all the ways that it can possibly break. Um, doing that at the the end, you know, as much human capital as you can throw at that thing is great, but um, doing it while you were moving probably would have been the best approach for us. And and uh, I see this, we see this in, uh, in software development too, is that you build your tests while you, while you deliver, while you iterate, right? So again, right. if you're an agile, you build, the thing that you're going to deliver that sprint, right? But you also build up a horde of test cases. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, so you deliver a thing and all your test cases are passing. That's great. If you ever want to go change, change the thing that you just made, you can just run it against that set of test cases again, and you can be assured that nothing changes. And then as you deliver your next sprint, then you just add to that massive set of test cases, right? So then every single piece of code that you, you write, you know, that it is being tested that way. And then you don't have to worry about like where all these freaking seg faults are coming from, right? Because they've already been, uh, they've already been hashed out. I think that's, that's where uh, GitHub was really, really useful as a tool. And I think the most important bit there was, you know, we went out, we did a couple of tests, we came back and we identified, okay, these are the issues that we had and created all that in the repository. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that basically served as a benchmark for us to go back and be like, okay, these are the issues that we have, how are we fixing that, you know, and document all of that stuff into the system, which enabled better collaboration between students. Like Craig mentioned, since we were all uh, college students, we had other priorities as well. Uh, We had classes and we had exams. And so having that central repository was critical because uh, that enabled us to go into our lives, do our thing, come back, look at the GitHub repo and be like, okay, this is what needs to be done. I'm going to work on this. And uh, that sort of enabled people to work on specific problems uh, without having to go back and forth between too much discussions. So I think that's, I think that's critical. And that's, I think uh, a takeaway for anybody who's, uh, who's thinking of, making their own space, CubeSat project while in school, get a well-documented GitHub repo and uh, try and maintain that as much as possible. Because that is, I think that's by far the biggest point that could enable either success or uh, failure of the project. To expand a little more on that, I won't go too too terribly far down the rabbit hole, right? But um, from what I've seen talking to, to student groups, you know, that are familiar with GitHub, it's not entirely clear how powerful the platform is, right? A lot of it gets lost in that, that GUI interface. So um, guys, uh, anybody, anybody listening who are uh, students and maybe you've just kind of used GitHub to host your code, there's 
a program behind GitHub called Git. And that is the core of uh, the functionality that we're talking about. It's a version control system for your code. So you can have multiple iterations of your code while maintaining um, one solid version on the, uh, the default branch. So in our case, uh, we called our default branch uh, the OBC master. And um, that was perfectly working code, right? And when we pushed code, we never, ever pushed directly to the OBC master, right? So anything, anytime you were making a new feature, you had, as Vivek was talking about, properly documented on the issue, you would create a branch uh, that was named after the same issue. And then that branch would, for all intents and purposes, it was an exact copy of the OBC master. And so you would edit that. You could do it on your local machines. You collaborate together, just like Vivek was talking about with him and Steven. And then when it's time that you're sure that that issue has been, um, has been addressed with your, with your branch, you review with your team. If we find that it is addressed, then we merge that issue into OBC master and it becomes part of the working line of code. So all that functionality is incredibly crucial to collaborating and maintaining um, your software to you know, work. And uh, you, you run that in with the testing that we were talking about earlier and you just get this lovely, theoretically always working um, iterated iterative uh, piece of software. So I really, really look into um, how to use Git underneath of GitHub, you know, really spend some, some time on that. It, it will save your bacon multiple times. At this the point, I, oh, I'm sorry, go for it. Oh, okay. I, I would say just to kind of, to add on to more of the testing side of things and merging to master, um, it's important to, to kind of go back to the, the test case, running those test cases that we were mentioning earlier, it's, it was also really important that you didn't merge too many things at once. Mm -hmm. Like anything that's merged to master, you should immediately run your master through all of your test cases. And for us, our test cases were really just running um, whatever we could out of a typical minimum functionality operation schedule. So things mm -hmm. like uh, if we uplink a file, does it accept that and process it correctly with ciphering? Uh, can we take an image and store that on the OBC? Those kinds of things. We made sure that nothing that we merged into master had broken any of our previous functionality. We did run into that a couple of times where we merged a couple of what we thought were smaller branches uh, and then turned out to break something. And then you spend half a day going back, kicking yourself in the foot uh, and trying to figure out, okay, what was the problem that caused... Um, that caused yeah. our code to break essentially. Yeah. So it's it's important to keep that in mind too and and go at a good pace, even though you feel very pressured to get things in as quickly as possible. It, it's yeah. still, it's very, very important to be very method, uh, methodical. Methodical, yeah, methodical. Yeah. I can make word sounds today, apparently. <laughs> it's, um, it's very tempting to you know, see the merge button, just be like, ah, it's, it's fine, it's fine. You know, like it's, especially when it's your own code right? You're like, yeah, there's no way that anything that I just wrote broke. And, and like, that's for everything, right? That's for when you're doing really complicated stuff where you know that you know there's no way that you wrote that correctly. And it's for even really simple stuff, right? Because like the problems that crop up in your software are insidious, and very, very hard to find sometimes. So resist the urge to just 
just slam it through. Even if you trust the author, even if the author was you, you know, yeah. be very, very methodical about it. Yeah. I think, I think but, the idea here is oh, to uh, have uh, as tiny as increment in your software uh, changes as possible mm -hmm. uh, and being able to test that. I mean, uh, but then again, it's, it's not uh, humanly possible all the time to uh, test in detail every single right. bit. But the idea is to make it as much as possible so that, you know, even if you have, uh, if you make an issue, Git happens to be very friendly that way and allows you to easily roll back your changes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could just go to a particular hash code for a given commit and then just go like, okay, I want to uh, pull this particular commit and uh, you go back in time. So as to say, it's like, yep. it's like crazy time machine. You go back in time and then you go like, okay, this is the part that was working. This is not working. What is the change that I made? And what is it that I want to uh, fix in those commits? Also, also one thing I would, since we're talking about GitHub right now, I'll, I'll, I'll add one, one common pitfall that uh, I would say large software development groups often fall into was the fact that if you have too many people working, they create their own branches and then they create more branches to track their, uh, you know, changes and, uh, you know, side ideas and stuff like that. Yeah. That creates a space where you have uh, hundreds of branches mm -hmm. and uh, that quickly gets out of hand. And in fact, I remember in December, we had this massive meeting. Yeah, where yeah. I think we had like what 50 a people meeting. in like one boardroom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we um uh, we like no, opened up it wasn't that crazy. We yeah. opened up uh, Git Kraken, which is a, a branch yeah. visualizing application, and we just like projected it up. And you know, I remember pointing yeah. at it like, okay, where's the working code? <laughs> all these other <laughs> all these other branches are like what what like yeah. 20 of these are, are just junk. <laughs> you know. So um I, Vivi, do you want to talk that, about that? That looked like a rat's nest, to be very honest. It just was like branches all over the place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think, I think we had a name for that meeting. It was like the great Git clean, clean up or something of that yeah. sort, where we were like, okay, this is where we're going to delete as many as branches as we could. And I think we went from like hundreds of branches to like down to under 50 branches or something like that. Yeah. And that I think was the biggest thing. I mean, in hindsight, I would say doing that more often would save you the uh, shock of seeing hundreds of branches on the screen at the same time and wondering what the hell is happening with our code. <laughs> yeah. um, so I can tell you two ways that I've seen uh, in industry that we get around that or we avoid that problem happening. One way is uh, restricting the number of branches that any one person could open at one time. Um, which I don't think you could do that in GitHub. I'm not sure. Um, but the other way is you do not allow um, branches on your repository that are not assigned to an issue. So um, in Atlassian uh, products like Bitbucket and Jira, Confluence, stuff like that, you know, which Bitbucket is a Git client the same way as GitHub is, right? Um, if you open up an issue on Jira, which is the issue tracking software, then you can um, make a branch off your repository in Bitbucket directly associated with the issue. And you can do the exact same thing on GitHub. You just have to be a little more 
um, thoughtful about, you know, why you're opening up this branch, what issue it's assigned to. Like for us, you know, after we did that great get cleanup, we started to open up branches and the branches were named after the issue. So if there was some stray branch out there, like what issues this belong to? Okay, get rid of it, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And that, that brought the organization up massively. Yes. Yeah, it also allowed us to kind of going back to what Vivek was saying, it allowed us to really focus on fixing really small things mm -hmm. in the code that were wrong or that you, even like things that you just need to modify because not all of the functionality is there. You know, you've been developing for a while and then you realize, oh, yeah, we should incorporate this into this app. Um, and then it's a small change and you merge it and that doesn't create any large issues for you, like what you were saying before, Vivek. So, yeah. yeah. Something that I saw on my side, you know, because I, you know, I'm a get fiend. I love it. Um, is that, you know, I might be working on my branch, but then I will want to branch off of my branch. And then like, you know, so that I don't break the current work that I'm doing in my branch. Right. Um, so if you are like me and you like to get that deep into Git, um, don't print, don't push your sub branches, finish them, merge them into the branch you're working on and then delete them. <laughs> So just, just to sum up, like, you know, just to sum up this section, I would say that uh, very important to use something, a, a, a versioning system like Git in your project, but ensure that uh, you keep it organized by maybe having more meetings uh, to figure out any irrelevant branches and trying to come up with a naming convention for your branches. Ideally for us, it worked. We named our branches with the issue they were related to. So they had the documentation on the issue and then we had the branch that worked for us. Uh, but definitely using a version control system like Git uh, definitely elevates your software development uh, to another level. This for sure. I think that concludes this section though, right? Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, a, that's really... a good summary. Vivek, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>